Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Got a quick memo to all of you who hate Duke. Dear Duke haters, all you folks who grew up hating Christian Leitner and Bobby Hurley, all of you who raged against floor slapping in Cherokee Parks, all of you people who managed to find ways to hate on Elton Brand, Shane Battier, Trajan Langdon, everybody who hated J.J. Reddick's guts, Nolan Smith, Kyle Singler, even Austin Rivers, I've got some really bad news. Really, really bad news for all of you. And it comes in the form of one Zion Williamson. If you have ever spent any time at all on basketball YouTube or Instagram, you saw one clip after another of this big dude dunking on helpless defenders in high school gyms. You knew this storm was coming, but the storm broke on Kentucky last night. And then it broke Kentucky last night. But... Before last night, maybe you knew this set of numbers. Check this out. Six foot seven, 285, a wingspan of six foot 10. Right now, he would be the second heaviest player in the NBA. Oh, one more fact. A 45-inch vertical leap. 45-inch vert. He would be the second heaviest player in the NBA right now, and he can dunk from the foul line. This guy is a creative player in NBA 2K. He is the perfect player for the modern NBA, and he's playing in college, and he just played his first college game. Now, what I'm not going to do is bother with comparisons to other players because anybody who makes those comparisons is going to sound insane. You'll be comparing this guy to players that nobody should ever be compared to, but the fact is, those comparisons actually fit, especially when you see moments like this from the first half last night. Guarded by Zion Williamson. White nearly a steal. Still batting for it. He's got it. Two on one. Here's Zion flying down the lane for two more. Duke IMG Sports Net with that. Throw it down, big man. Forget about Zion. Rocking a mouth guard. Everybody else on the court should be out there wearing helmets and shoulder pads, because somebody's going to make the mistake of being in his path or near the rim when he dunks, and he is going to put that person in the ground. And yes, every arena in the ACC better do a quick safety check and make sure there are a few more bolts in their backboards because one of them is coming down this season. Here's another set of numbers. 28 points on 11 of 13 shooting. Seven boards, two assists, one steal, and one of the most disrespectful blocks that you are ever going to see. Johnson from the free throw line, tried to lob it inside for Richard. Zion took it right out of his hand. Mercy, a bounce pass for Barrett, a layup, and a chance for three. The Blue Devils blowing out the Wildcats here in Indianapolis. I mean, seriously, what the hell was that? What just happened? What was that? I don't know if that was a block shot or this guy just ripped it right out of the sky and then started the fast break and had the assist to finish it off. I mean, what exactly was that? I don't even have time for all the highlights. So let me just say this. Zion did not come to take part. He came to take over. And worse yet for the Duke haters, he's not alone. Far from it. He was not even the highest scorer on that team last night. That honor goes to R.J. Barrett. He had 33 to go along with six assists. And all Cam Reddish did was put up 22 and had four steals. 
I mean, are we talking about the three best players going in next year's draft? I would never compare any team to Alabama football. But last night, Duke basketball was Alabama football in blue shorts. They were that dominant. Dominant. They got 100 with seven and a half minutes left in the game. They put up 100 with seven and a half minutes left. And that was not some body bag game either. That was not a bye game against a directional school. That was against Kentucky, the bluest of the blue bloods. And that left a black eye. And notice I haven't given you the final score yet. Have not even mentioned the final score. And that's no accident. Because it was brutal. It was graphic in nature. Duke, 118. Kentucky, 84. That was the alleged number four team in the country beating the number two team in the country by 34. And it could have been so much worse. Duke could have named its score. And they did it against another elite team. They did it against the second-ranked team. So this is not about a national title. I mean, at this point, if this is who they are, if this is really who they are, and this is who or how they're going to play, you're not going to beat these guys. Your best won't be their best. Your best might not be their very good. This, to me, isn't even about a national title. It's about something potentially bigger than that. I know it's only one game, but it was a game against Kentucky. And by bigger than that, I mean this. This is about the most entertaining jaw-dropping team since Anthony Davis was running with Kentucky. Maybe even further back than that. It's only one game. Injuries can happen. But this crew can be iconic. Ionic. Even Ionic. Ionic. Like I'm talking about Fab Five. Transcendent like that. I'm talking about Larry Johnson's UNLV teams. And that's the thing. It's not about handing them a title right now. This could be even bigger than a title. Keep this in mind. The Fab Five never won a title. But they're legendary. They're iconic. They're Ionic. Ionic. And they never won at all. This is what this Duke team can be. A team that gives you one of those where were you when feelings every time they hit the floor. So if you're one of those player, people who does not watch college basketball until March, you want to change that plan stat because you're going to miss something amazing. One game in, and Zion literally is one of the greatest things I've seen in college basketball in years. In years. And was not even their leading scorer last night. Mercy! Mercy is right. Not a word I use very often, but damn, mercy. They were amazing last night. 1-800-636-8686. And once again, that was not some bye game against a directional school. That was against Kentucky. That was John Calipari's worst loss as a coach. So, if you hate Duke, it's going to be a long, long year. one 800 636-8686. 636-8686. Hit me up. Remember, I've got Cruz Pedregon in the house. He will be in studio next segment. Other things today. Suck Le'Veon Bell. Yes, I did say yesterday. Uh, I'm tired of this. I don't care how it ends as long as it ends. I would love to say that my update today is to tell you that it's over. There's resolution. There's closure. He reported he's not going to play this year. None of the above. We still do not know, but there was a sighting. And he lit Twitter on fire again yesterday because he got in a local run. Five on five. In Pittsburgh at an LA Fitness. Is that how it's going to be, Lev? Is that how that's going to go? Apparently that's not done yet. 
Hot Stove League. We'll talk some baseball. I'm not here to really get into Bryce Harper and the fact that he turned down a, quote, aggressive offer from the Nats, and the Nats took it off the table. This does not surprise me at all. I'd much rather talk about what the Mets are doing. I'll have that for you later on. Des Bryant signing with the Saints. My reaction to that a little bit later on. Very quickly, some reaction off the top. Email number one, James, I don't hate Duke. Here is what I do hate. One, floor slappers. Two, floppers. Three, staffers that go sprinting across the court at TV timeouts. Four, dudes who trip others on purpose. Five, junk punchers. Six, rats. I wonder what team has all of those traits. Let's see, one by one. Do they slap the floor? Yes. Do they flop? Yes. Do they have staffers that go sprinting across the court at TV timeouts? I guess. Do they have dudes who trip others on purpose? No, they don't have dudes. They had one guy. Do they have junk punchers? I don't know. Maybe one guy? And do they have rats? No, they do not. So I'm not really sure what you're talking about, Steve. See, like I said, if you hate Duke, it's going to be a long-ass year. Cruz Pedragon is my guest. Cruz, my man, what's going on? How are Rumi, you? What is up, man? Good good to see you. Good to be back on the show. Thanks for so having me. So good to have you back. All right, so the NHRA finals are in SoCal. Tuesday's Daily Jungle is brought to you by Ferguson. Listen to this. No matter how big or small your team is, Ferguson has a winning game plan for pro contractors with thousands of plumbing repair parts, knowledgeable associates, and the largest national footprint in the game. When the pressure is on, you can count on Ferguson. Cruz, you are in studio. How is life for you, and how's my guy Caleb Cox doing? You know, life is good. Actually, we I was on your show in February. Uh, we had great expectations for the year. A uh, lot of high hopes. And, you know, we started out well. We won a race. We won the four wide nationals in Charlotte. And things were rolling along pretty good early summer. And then we kind of we kind of went into a little bit of a uh, uh, blow-up mode. We were blowing the, blowing the engine up, blowing bodies off the cars. And so it turns out that the way the NHRA has the rules, we, we were deducted points at these events, and rightfully so. If you, if you delay the, the, the race... They're going to take points away, NHRA is, which is a good, you know, I agree with the rule. However, that kicked us out of the, uh, our, our playoffs, or they we'll call the countdown, sure. knocked us right out based on the losing those points. So uh, we've picked up the pieces. I, I made a change at the, I, and you know me, I always talk like I'm talking in the NFL. I made the coaching change, made a crew chief change, and we stopped blowing the engine up, and we've recovered. The cars, the snap-on cars running really good now. It's consistent. So we have high hopes for this weekend at Pomona. It's my home home track. Love to Love to finish off on a high note here. Cruz Pedregon joining me in studio already. If you've got a question or a comment for Cruz, we will take it. You clones know what he's about. You can hit me up on the phones, 1-800-636-8686. You know, Cruz, you mentioned this, but for instance, in Denver, you had one of the all-time explosions, and that did launch the body off the car. What do you remember about that run in that day? I remember it was violent. I remember it it hurt my ears. And then I remember not being able to see for a while because when these fires happen, they appear to be sudden. You're, people see it as I'm seeing it. It's like it happens faster than the brain can even comprehend what's going on. But I remember the fire kind of staying in my face for a while. And, I, and that concerned me just for a split second because you're at the mercy of the fire bottles. You're at the mercy of the fire going out because even though we have the fire 
restrained equipment, the helmets, the suits, five layer suits. We only have a little time. We don't, we're, that just buys us a few extra seconds. And when you go down the track, think about it. If you lose the body, now you're a blowtorch. Think about it. What feeds a fire? Oxygen. So the fire danger is always there for us to drive these funny cars. And so thankfully, it uh, you know, the body didn't land. In, it, it actually went towards the crowd. Luckily, it didn't land on the crowd. And But that was really, our season was hanging in that balance. Had we been able to accelerate that that event we felt we could have had a real good push towards the middle and the end of the year however that took the wind out of our sails that was our third big blow up of the year and it really was a sign that uh, you know i had to probably look at making a change uh and really we didn't find any smoking gun we just found a maintenance issue we found several little things wasn't one big thing and so uh you know Luckily, uh, we. Uh, the, I guess what I'm saying is, when this year ends, I'm gonna have, be lucky to have survived because, hey, you you do three or four of these, the odds are not in your favor to, to you know to walk away. Cruz Pedregon joining me in studio. Big weekend coming up here in Pomona, here in Southern California. Cruz, I mean that that's a terrifying thing. I mean, you understand what you signed up for. You understand what this job <clears> is. <throat> But is that something you just shake off and you get right back into the backup car? Or is something like that going to stay with you for quite some time? You know, it's funny, Jim, you, you ask great questions, and that's exactly right. You know, we all, athletes or, or drivers or whatever, you always try to say, oh, yeah, we shake it off. But really, you don't, uh, especially when something – I have a daughter that's seven years old. So I think about things like, man, I want to be able to be healthy and, and survive these and be able to be there for my daughter when, when she's older. So when you, you don't realize it until you get back in the car, and here's the moment of truth – when you're on that throttle wide open and you can see the finish line, I still do it to this day after these four explosions. I actually lift off the throttle maybe a little prior to the finish line. And I do that because I do have this instinctive fear that if, man, if I would have lifted a little earlier when I felt something go wrong with the car, maybe I wouldn't have blown up. So it does play a little bit on your mind a little bit. You try not to let it, but I'm explaining to my crew chief, he looks at the computer and says, hey, Cruz, you shut it off at at 900 feet or right before the finish line. And I said, well, I just felt a little something. So you kind of, kind of like you hear footsteps, you know, you hear players, uh, you know, people in other sports talk about hearing footsteps. And so I've been doing it long enough to know that uh, I hopefully I get those footsteps away from me here soon because, but I feel like if I'm in a race and I'm in a battle on race day, I'll stay on the throttle, but I'm really quick to get off the throttle nowadays. It's a really honest answer, actually, Cruz. Cruz Pedregon joining me in studio. So you grind out that win. You snapped a 92-race winless streak. I know that felt great to get that win. Right after the win, John Force and Courtney Force came over to congratulate you. What was that moment like? What did that mean to you? Well, it meant a lot. You know, you want to be respected by your uh by your competitors and John Forrest, let me say this about John. He's our Dale Earnhardt of our of drag racing. He's he's the, he's the man. And I got to say, throughout the years, we've had our rivalries, we've had our tussles on and off the track a little bit. But John's always been a class act. He's always been there uh, to support me and his daughters. His daughters the same way. His daughters very uh, uh, gracious in, in losing. We've we've managed to beat her. She's got a great car this year. So uh, yeah, it meant a lot. You know, especially coming from a guy of of John Forrest's uh, stature. You know, Cruz, that win moved you into fifth all-time in Funny Car Wins. And that's really something when you consider this. You said that when you first got into racing, you thought if you could last a year or two, that'd be great. Here we are, 27 years later, and you're top five all-time. You're still killing it. What's that mean to you? And can you take me back? What do you remember about that first year? What was that like? 
You know, it, it does. It's amazing to me. You know, for me to last this long, Jim, if you think about it, think about this for a second. If you're an athlete, and I, I'm a big football guy, so I think about the window that they have to operate, window of, of, of that they're on a team. It's, you know, sometimes three, I think the average is three or four years. Some guys last 10, some guys go 15. We're obviously a quarterback now, uh, uh, Tom Brady's looking at 20 years. But I think about the amount of money to finance my team. And, and I, I tell people, we have Tito Ortiz, by the way, and uh, uh, Chuck Liddell, are, 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 they're going to be part of the guests at NHRA. I'm going to tell them when I see them, I've never met them before. I'm going to say, hey, look, I've in a, I'm like you guys. I've had a tough road to hoe because try talking a corporation out of millions of dollars to fund my athletic career you guys have to do it by kicking butt and winning and beating all these guys so uh but yeah it's meant a lot the, the longevity to me jim's meant a lot uh, records i think i'll reflect on them when i'm when my career is done but the fact that i've been able to sustain it you know, i'm going on shoot i'm going on 25 26 years now in the pros and like i said you string the uh, you know it costs three or four million a year to run one of these cars so i think about uh, you know i've been very fortunate that i've had corporations look at me even as after I ended my driving career with Joe Gibbs, I was able to carry on and become an owner and add maybe another 10 more years to my career. Cruz Pedregon joining me in studio. Once again, it's a huge weekend in Pomona. Now, Cruz, as I mentioned, in the open, you are the fastest man in the jungle, and you very generously put up an additional prize for the winner of the smack-off. Then in the smack-off, Brad and Corona <laughs> takes a run at you as only the BIC can. What was your reaction when you heard that after you put up an awesome prize? You know, it was great. Brad Brad was awesome. and and uh, But, you know, he was right. You know, most people that aren't really familiar with drag racing, they look, oh, the drag drag race, that you're, you're not you you know you blink you lose the you lose the run but i respected what he had to say and i felt like you know what maybe we need to educate brad a little bit maybe we need to let him realize that hey people pay thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands even millions of dollars to be on these cars it's a huge business not just drag racing but in and and the uh, nh the nascar but i felt like we need to get Brad's in Corona. He should go out to Pomona. It's like, how can you live in Southern California and not be down with drag racing? It's like, it's like, you know, a funny thing. Let, let me say this. I was thinking the other day about racing in general, and I was thinking about people. But if you take, let's just say you were to take the top group of race cars, let's say an Indy car, a Formula One car, uh, I don't know, any kind of car you want, and a drag car, my nitro funny car, and put them in, go to another country where they don't know anything about anything and just parade these cars with the engines running, do donuts, do whatever you do, accelerate. I guarantee you these people are going to look at that and go, they, they might not even speak our language. They, they're going to look at our nitro funny car and go, wow, what is that? Because it just, it, it, what it does to the sense is the horsepower. Hey, I'm not taking anything away from NASCAR, IndyCar. Hey, I'm a fan of those cars too, Formula One. But the sheer power of our cars, there's nothing like it. So fury, man. Yeah, it's, fury. it's, it's amazing. 10,000 horsepower. And 10,000 horsepower. 10,000 horsepower. Think about that. I, I, you know, I can actually kind of put that in perspective. I've been in cars, street cars, that are 600. And the freaking monsters. I mean, yeah. monsters. Six hundred under the hood is right. a monster cruise. You know that. So ten thousand. I mean, that's the number I can't even wrap my head around. And in terms of this whole thing about, do you understand what it would cost to get your name or to put something on a car? Hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars. It cost me nothing. Cruise charged you nothing, Brad. He charged me nothing. <laughs> so I appreciate it a lot. Now, a bunch of the clones. In fact, let's go to the phones. Put those on if you don't mind, yep. Cruise. 
If you've got a question for Cruz Pedregon, if it feels like I'm talking fast, it's because he drives fast, and I'm trying to get as much as I possibly can in here. But let's go to the phones. If you've got a question or a comment, 1-800-636-8686. Big weekend here in Pomona. The fastest clone in the jungle, Cruz Pedregon in studio. Let's go to Maine. Earl in Maine. Earl, nice to have you on. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you very much for uh, taking my call. I appreciate it. You got it. Yeah, I just wanted to say to Cruz, um, we're big fans uh, of you, Cruiser, and your brother, Tony, and your dad, Flame and Frank. All right. Um, My dad um, and I don't live close to each other. He lives in Indiana, and I live in Maine, but we're going to get together for the U.S. Nationals and go next Next Labor Day weekend, we're coming to see you, brother. So we're looking forward to it. Earl, appreciate it, man. It's great. Uh, You know, I was going to tell Jim, no matter where we are in the country, I can be in Timbuktu and the clone love that we get, Jim, and, you know, and putting a sticker on the car. There is a little area I reserve. I told you this last time. There's a little area I reserve on the car for just things that I'm into, things that uh, mean something to me. And obviously having your show and being able to put your name on the car is meaningful to me because I do have a life away from racing. I am a regular guy and I like, I love sports, love your show, have for 30 some years. So it's an honor for me to be able to do that, to hang out with the man, Jim Rome. And so, yeah, it's great. Uh, Earl, appreciate the call and be sure to come by and see us uh, at the U.S. Nationals. Earl, thanks so much for that. Cruz, it means the world to me. I really do appreciate you finding some real estate on that car to represent the show, to represent me. It's great to hang out with you, too. You know, you mentioned you're a football fan. Those who know you know that. And you're not just a football fan. You are a Raider fan, a diehard Raider fan. They're one in seven. Have you lost any faith in John Gruden and his plan, the faith that you had in him when he came back? Not at all. You know, it's funny, Jim, because I I had so many friends come up to me and say, oh, hey, man, you know, what do you think about uh, Gruden, this and that and the other, and and all, Marshawn and all that. And I thought to myself, man, and I said eight and eight to some guy, and he's like, eight and eight, they're not, you know. So I think the perception of the millions of dollars, uh, the the $100 million deal, the 10 years, all that, I got people thinking, all right, here we go. It's Gruden from, you know, back when the, uh, you know, back when he was at the Raiders the first time. But I really feel like, and I hate to say this because I'm fans of all the players, but I felt like he has a plan. I feel like he has a plan and he looked at what he had and he he's making changes. It's no different than a crew chief coming into a drag race team or a NASCAR team. And really the evaluation process has to start from the moment you come in and really until you're inside the building and really evaluate whether it's equipment and racing or, or, uh, or the, the type of uh, people you have, you know, uh, doing the pit stops or whatever it is, you have to make changes Unless you just because if John Gruden's not John Gruden, if he just says, hey, yeah, I'll come one, come all. We, we got it here. You know, he realized that they needed a change. So this is a complete overhaul, Jim. And, I, you know, I know enough about uh, football to know that this is uh, not what's going to happen today. It's going to be painful today. But I think the benefits are going to be there tomorrow. Let me say this. I drove for a guy named Joe Gibbs, who, I'm, who you know very well. Joe would always tell a story. He was 1-15 in 15 his first year in Washington with the Redskins. And he was telling me, they, and think about it, they didn't have social media. They didn't have all those things in the early 80s. And he was telling me they wanted him out of there so bad. Fire him. He, you know. And three Super Bowls later with three different uh, quarterbacks. And, you know, and then they they talk about the Dallas Cowboys, the changes they made with Cowboys, uh, you know, when Jerry Jones first took it over. And it kind of reminds me a little of that. So, hey, bottom line, um, it's a long-winded uh, answer, but I believe in John Gruden. I believe that he's going to turn the Raiders around and it's going to be uh, back to what they were uh, years ago. 
If you're looking for a place to check out sports betting, you have to check out my bookie. You know, ever since I started doing this podcast, people have been asking me over and over again for advice. Normally, they want to know who to bet. Who do you bet this week? Listen, the truth is, I don't know, right? I can give you an educated take, but I don't know for certain. Now, I know a lot of you think you do know. I know a lot of you know you know. If that's the case, you need to check out my bookie. Remember, who you're betting on is just as important as who you're betting with. This is why I always tell people to bet with my bookie. Trust me, they are the very best bet this season. They have been in business for years, they have great reviews online, and their mobile site is so easy to use. I would only recommend a service to you that I've been using myself. This is why I'm urging you to make your way to my bookie. You win, they pay. They have in-game live betting, the most rewarding player perks in the business, and for you fantasy guys out there, you can even bet the over-under on how many fantasy points a player will score each game. Join right now, and my bookie will match your deposit dollar for dollar. Use the promo code Rome and activate that offer. Visit my bookie online today. That's M Y B O O K I E. Do not forget to use the promo code Rome when creating your account, and you can claim up to one thousand in free play. You play, you win, you get paid with my bookie. All right. Meantime, big story this morning. Apparently, Des Bryant's found himself a gig. And he's going to sign with the Saints. Now, remember, Dez has been looking for work. Dez reportedly turned down three years at seven mil per with Baltimore. Looked like one of the worst decisions ever by an athlete. So he's sitting around, waiting around, looking for an opportunity. And now he finally gets one. Not at seven mil per and not for three years, but he gets an opportunity. You know, if I were Dez, I'd be thrilled. This is the best opportunity this guy could get. Going to a team that's red hot, playing as well as anybody in the NFC, and just as importantly, going to a team that has Drew Brees as quarterback, going to a team that's got an unbelievable wide receiver on the other side, going to a team that's got a head coach in Sean Payton. This is a great opportunity for Dez to show that he still has something left, that he still can get it done. If Dez can't get it done playing with Drew Brees and playing for Sean Payton, then this guy's not going to get it done, period. He's got nothing left. So that's a great opportunity. In fact, one that I really didn't think that he was going to get. For him to turn down that three-year deal with the Ravens and then to go to Cleveland and walk away without accepting a contract, it looked like that might be it. Then he wanted to go back to Dallas, and Dallas wanted nothing to do with him. It looked like he overplayed his hand, played it badly, but now somehow, some way, this guy gets a shot to play for a contender. So, Des. Get off of social, get off of Twitter, get to work. Do the work. Again, if you can't make it work with Drew and Sean Payton, it's not going to work anywhere, and you will never get another opportunity. Man, this dude is lucky. And maybe he can help him. Maybe he can help him. So we know what's going to happen to Dez. We don't know what's going to happen to Le'Veon Bell. Now remember, he lit NFL Twitter on fire when he tweeted, Farewell Miami. Everybody wondered after that tweet what was going to happen next. Was he going to report? Was he just stalling? Was he even going to tell the Steelers what was going on, considering he didn't do that before he thumbed out that tweet? Well, here's something that nobody saw coming. Lev was already suiting up, and he was already doing it in Pittsburgh. Man, this is a pretty mysterious cat. Already suiting up, already doing it in Pittsburgh, but 
It was for the afternoon five-on-five run at the LA Fitness. That's right. Lev set Twitter afire once again, only this time it was because photos started to fly out of a local gym where he was spotted playing basketball. Pick up hoops. So we're officially at the part of the Le'Veon Bell saga where this dude's teammates are not Big Ben or Juju or AB. Nope. He's playing make it, take it with a bunch of scrubs trying to get a sweat in before they go back and finish their workday. Great. What's next? Showing up at a spin class? Getting a ride in the morning? Is he going to drop by the local CrossFit gym and do some mediocre burpees or swinging pull-ups? Is this dude so desperate to find a workout that he's going to roll into some high school weight room and try to work on his buys and his tries? All that's left now is trying to figure out what kind of a stat line this guy put up on the LA Fitness Hardcourt. Was his jumper falling? Was it wet? How was his cardio? Did he distribute the rock? And did James Conner show up this morning at the local 24-hour fitness, score the same amount of points, get a couple of more rebounds, and do it in half the time for a fraction of the cost without any of the drama? So I think right now it's fair to ask, is this all worth it? Is it all worth it? I mean, sure, Le'Veon saved some wear and tear on his body this year, but are prospective teams going to see it that way? Are prospective teams going to look at Bell and say he's a better player for having not played this year, for not bringing the usage rate up any higher? Are prospective teams going to look at him and think he's better and he's fresher, or are they going to look at him and say he's just a year older? And, by the way, it may all be for naught if the Steelers do him the same way and they tag him again, and they might be able to. If that's the case, and he's back in the exact same spot that he was with them anyway, what's the point of this? This dude's out there running with some randos in an LA Fitness, while James Conner is out there running with his Steeler teammates and killing it. And frankly, Pittsburgh really has not missed Le'Veon much at all. I don't want somebody telling me what to do with my money. So I'm not going to tell Bell what to do with his money. If he wants to light his money on fire every single week, you go right ahead. But I will ask this. I will ask whether or not he's going to get the money that he thinks he's worth, whether or not he's going to get the money he's asking for next year, whether or not the holdout was worth it and it's going to pay off. I'm not sure it will. I'm not sure it is. I mean, it's sort of funny, I guess, that instead of taking a run at a Super Bowl with Ben, A.B. and the fellas, that he's out getting a run in with Tim from accounting, and that hairy, sweaty dude that nobody wants to guard in the low block. Except it's not going to be that funny if Lev is swimming laps with the seniors and setting personal bests in the backstroke next week. And this holdout is still going on, and then he's got nothing to show for it. Once again, your career, your money, but your teammates are doing their jobs and making actual money while you're screwing around in an L.A. fitness for free. And they may not need you. They certainly haven't Terry missed you. Scott's is my guest. Terry, it's great to have you back on. How are you, Terry? I'm doing well, Jim. How are you doing? Doing so well. Great to have you back, Terry. Thank you. You're coming off a win last night over a very good Milwaukee team. In fact, a 15-point win. Going into last night, Terry, C.J. McCollum wasn't necessarily shooting the way that he would have liked, and then he breaks out with 40. What did you make of what you saw from him last night? 
Well, he looked very comfortable. I thought he uh, he scored in a variety of ways. He had mid-range, he had floaters, he had three-point shots, uh, he um, he had six assists. I mean, he just he he played a very all-round game. And you know, it's not like he uh, wasn't playing poorly. It wasn't that he was playing poorly. It's just he hadn't been at the level I think that we had gotten accustomed to over the last three years. Right, so knowing the player and knowing the way he goes after it, the way he gets his work in. Did you have any concerns at all, or did you know it was just a matter of time before he found his rhythm? No, it was just a matter of time. I mean, he has t- too big of a body of work, you know, just like Damian, where if if they don't, if they're not hitting stride, you know that they're going to break out because that's who they are. And I think every player goes through it at some point during the season. Uh, it's just. You know, CJ kind of hit his coming out of the gates. We talked to Terry Stotts. Terry, you mentioned he hit a variety of shots, including that floater. One of the things that he said after the game was he thought that it was, quote, very disrespectful that the Bucks put a rookie on him. I mean, did you see that look in his eye last night that let you know that he took that personally and that something good was going to happen for him and for you? I don't know about the look in his eye uh, in that respect. However, I, I do know that uh, he had a confidence about um, – about going at him one-on-one I just uh you know he had a good game going and then the fact that um that there was a rookie on him I think he probably did take it personal but I don't to me it was more he showed a confidence rather than uh, a disdain I've got an entire take on that that I'll do a little bit later on but he was feeling it last night he he's always aggressive but it just seemed like he even dialed it up even a notch more Terry Stotts is joining us but that's the risky run if you put a rookie on a guy like that now, when you're facing the Bucks, Terry, that means you have to deal with Giannis defensively. What was your approach in defending him? And then how pleased were you with the way Evan Turner and Chief showed up against the Freak? Well, I thought both of them uh, made an outstanding effort uh, throughout the game to to make it difficult for him. And, you know, he had 11 baskets. I know he had either eight or nine dunks. So we tried to, to make him beat us from outside. Um, I thought they did a nice job with their closeouts. They limited his drives. Uh, they didn't. He didn't get much in transition. Uh, he had to work for the baskets that he did get, and that's all you can ask for against a great player. I mean, he's having an outstanding season, uh, doing a little bit of everything, and he's so important to their team and their success. So, uh, I just I liked the way Evan and Chief took the challenge and didn't get down when. Uh, when he did score or when he did take advantage of any opportunities. We're talking to Terry Stotts, the head coach of the Trailblazers. I mentioned the trial quickly. You're 8-3. and three. And the last couple of seasons, maybe the team hasn't gotten out quite as fast as that, but you are right now. What's been the biggest key to the quick start this season? Well, uh, I think we made it a uh, priority, not that we didn't <laughs> years past, but you know, the last three years we've gotten off to slow starts, and that was a priority coming into this season. Um, but just on the court, I think Damian has been his uh, normal self. I think probably the biggest story for us has been our second unit, led by Evan Turner. Uh, Nick Stauskas and Seth Curry have come in and had an impact, so I think they complement uh, Evan and his skill set. Zach Collins has an expanded role, uh, and he has improved and filled that role well. And, you know, it's just I think the confidence of our second unit has not only maintained leads, sometimes they've grown leads, sometimes they uh, were instrumental in getting wins. So uh, for me, that that's probably the thing that stands out the most so far. I'm glad you mentioned Zach Collins. You know, Terry, I had him on the show over the summer. I really enjoyed that conversation a lot. We're only 11 games in, but he's already doubled his scoring from last season. He's still just 20 years old. What's been the biggest difference in his game from last year to this year? You know, I think it's just a, uh, a confidence uh, and an understanding. Last year, 
to be honest, he probably wasn't – we didn't project him to play as much uh, as he did last year and have the role that he ended up having, being a rotation player on a playoff team. Uh, now he's uh, – because uh, Ed Davis is no longer with him, he's been able to expand his role. You know, he played the majority of his minutes with Ed, which I thought was uh, beneficial to him in his rookie season. Now he's playing a little bit of five, a little bit of four, inside, outside. Um, he just He's a very skilled – skilled player uh he expects a lot of himself he's um he wants to get better uh he has great defensive instincts so you know it's just i think the growth that that he is having is only going to going to improve you know looking at your roster there's been consistency especially with the main three but you also added some shooters in the offseason which is more valuable now than ever before in the nba in fact how much has the league changed since you were when you were first an assistant and then how much has it changed even in your time in portland (laughs) well going back to the 90s when it was a grinded out half court game and uh 80 games in the 80s and 90s it's it's changed considerably uh, you know the defenses have changed the style of play has changed i it's 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 difficult to even compare the two uh the two generations but uh i think you see even the change uh, so notable from even last year the pace has gone up uh, i don't know what percent probably at least 10% threes are uh three attempts have gone up um almost uh, geometrically, or what's I can't think of the word, the, the mathematical word. I'm exponentially. Thinking. Exponentially. There, there you, you go. go. You know? uh, anyway, it's uh, the game has just evolved, and you look at a guy like Brook Lopez, who two years ago wasn't shooting threes. He and Marcus Sol. Uh, I mean, Brook Lopez uh, was six for ten from three last night. A guy who didn't shoot threes until two years ago. So, I mean, it's it's league wide. Coaches, players have uh, embraced the style. And to be honest, I think it's good for the game because it really accentuates talent. And then in the West, Terry, the conference has been so nasty for so long. And then LeBron James arrives in the offseason. When you look at the conference this year in comparison to years past, how does the Western Conference stack up? Is it even tougher than it's been in recent years? I think so, just because it, it is so deep. Uh, I mean, you look at you look at the standings now, and, and there are uh, teams that are projected to make the playoffs that uh, – that are below 500 right now, and so they've gotten off to some slow starts. You look at a team like Sacramento that uh, has gotten off to a good start, and it's uh, it's deep. I think you're going to see a, a roller coaster up and down the standings uh, at different points during the season because because of not only how good the West is, but the parity in the West. Terry Stotts joins us for another moment or so. Terry, last month, team owner Paul Allen passed away, and he's somebody who was an absolute titan in so many different ways. It can almost be overwhelming to even comprehend his impact on the entire world. What was he like as a person, and how was he with you? You know, he uh, he he loved the Blazers. I think that's the the biggest thing. He loved the Blazers. He's a passionate fan of the game and the team. For all thirty years, they owned the team. When he was with me, you know, he had been he had been through it all. He'd been to the finals. He'd been through rebuilds. Uh, he'd been through uh, the good times and the bad times uh, over the course of 30 years, uh, but he never lost the passion for for the game. He uh, he loved the draft. He loved uh, he loved the players. Uh, he, he just that was my biggest takeaway from him. You know, as far as me with me, the time that I spent with him, he was always uh, you know he was a guy who was always trying to find a better way, whether it was with basketball or uh, in all his other endeavors, was trying to find a, a new idea, a new way of doing things. And 
he uh, he challenged me. He challenged uh, Neil O'Shea. Is like, are have we thought about doing this? Have we thought about doing this? What about he? Had, he had a lot of questions, and uh, and they were all uh, they're all very insightful, to be honest. And watching the Blazers and the Bucks last night, and I did, especially to get ready for Terry Stotts. A couple of things were very evident to me. Number one, C.J. McCollum had it going. Number two, something was bothering C.J. McCollum. Why don't we get to the second thing first? Because as the Celtics and the Nuggets showed us on Monday night, and Kyrie venting after that game, there is nothing better than a salty NBA star, especially this time of season. And last night, C.J. McCollum was extremely salty. Not because a Bucks player tried to take a three when he should not have but rather because a Bucks player tried to defend him when he should not have. Even if he was just trying to do his job. That Bucks player was Dante DiVincenzo. He was sent out there to guard C.J. McCollum, and C.J. was none too happy to see the big ragu guarding him. There was no love from C.J. for the Michael Jordan of Delaware. McCollum said afterwards that seeing the Michael Jordan of Delaware guarding him was, quote, very disrespectful. It's very disrespectful, end quote. You can only imagine what was going through his mind when he saw the rookie walk over to him. McCollum met disrespect with disrespect. 40 points, six assists, five rebounds, four assists. And I don't even know where to start. How about with this dunk? In the first quarter. Brockton outside intercepted by C.J. Longstride. Second the rear view. And eases one up and over the cup with a two-hand jab on the run. So he got it going early on. And then in the third quarter, he got really nice. He poured in 19. He did this. C.J. goes to work. Fires over DiVincenzo and got it. C.J. McCollum has got it going on. He did. And if you thought he had it going on after that shot, then he went next level at the end of the third quarter. If you have not seen or heard this clip, you should probably stop whatever it is you're doing right now because CJ is about to wreck the rook. And stayed off that rim. He was all befuddled. Horn swaggled, befuddled bamboozled, bewildered, flustered, dumbfounded, stupefied. Run it back again, Alvy. Fatality, flawless victory. Ice, ibuprofen. Ice, ibuprofen. I'm telling you, man, he just turned the big ragu's ankles into Bolognesi. Double D was on an island, and then he got dump trucked. I have not seen anybody hit the deck that hard or that embarrassingly since James Harden put Wesley Johnson into traction. Harden one-on-one here. Yeah, James doubling up the Clippers. Clean up on aisle three. Clean up on aisle three. Someone call someone because there's a clean up on aisle three as a man is down. Oh, no. Oh, no. Someone call someone. someone Clean up on aisle three. There's a man down. There's a mess. I need a mop. Someone call someone. You better yet, somebody call Wesley Johnson. Check on him. It's been a while, but we need to get an update on him. I'm guessing he's still picking up pieces of his ankle bones. 
Wes should get in touch with Dante. They should form some sort of survivor group. In the meantime, CJ's teammate, Yusuf Nurkic, had some advice for the rookie. Quote, welcome to the league. It can be hard some nights. Put some ice on it and you'll be fine. End quote. Ragu should be fine. The problem is, I mean, he'll be fine, but that highlight is not going anywhere. That's the kind of a clip that can drive you right out of the league. There are a couple of lessons to be learned here. Number one, do not disrespect C.J. McCollum. Number two, do not stick a rookie on C.J. McCollum. Number three, if you disrespect C.J. McCollum and you stick a rookie on him, that rookie is going to have burns and scars. They're going to last a long time, probably forever. I don't know how Dante was able to get up off that floor and walk after that. My ankles were wrecked just watching it. My pride was shattered just watching it. And nothing happened to me. When asked how it felt to drop somebody like that, CJ said, quote, a nice feeling. But being able to make that shot after putting someone down is the toughest part. You have to make the shot, end quote. It's a good point. That's true. You can't split somebody in half like that and then dent the backboard with that shot. You got to finish him. And CJ did in the most ruthless fashion. Welcome to the association, kid. Now go grab a bag of ice. Ice. And a cup full of ibuprofen. Ibuprofen. For your ankles, your knees, your groin, whatever it takes. That was bad. Hornswoggled, befuddled. He was hornswoggled. Casey New Hampshire tweets. I was pleased to see that CJ was trying last night. Sincerely, Jennifer. I'm trying, Jennifer. I'm trying, Jennifer. is still my favorite line of the NBA season. Robert Klemko is my guest. Robert, great to have you back. How are you? You're just never going to let that go. I love it. How can I? It's like the best thing ever. And you earned that. You deserve credit for that. And I'm going to make damn sure you get that credit. You earned it. What's up, man? How you feeling? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Really good. Really good. So I think you have a great piece up right now in the Cleveland Browns on MMQB. And it starts with this anecdote from the Tampa Bay game a few weeks back. So let me start right there. Second and 26, Baker Mayfield runs for a 35-yard gain. Tampa safety Jordan Whitehead delivers a hat-to-hat shot. Mayfield jumps right up and gets right after Whitehead yelling, Yeah, mother bleeper. So what about that moment right there? What does that say about Baker Mayfield? Well, I think to his teammates, it, it said a lot because those guys put a really high value on a quarterback who can step in there and, and go tit for tat with other teams and, and is as competitive as they all feel that they are. And I think that that's what they've got and, and that's what they've learned about Baker Mayfield. So they're learning more and more about him and you've spent some time with him. So probably you were not surprised by that. I mean, when you look at this and you've got like Devereaux Lawrence, a defensive lineman saying, quote, Baker's a dog. There are certain things that you can't teach dogs. There's a whole bunch of savages in here, but we've got one in a quarterback. He looked at him and told him, yeah, mother bleeper. Everybody could read those lips. I mean, that's an amazing quote. When you've got a rookie quarterback getting that kind of love from a defensive teammate, how big is that? Yeah, you know, Devereaux was one of the guys that went home and watched the film on on his tablet. And, and all those guys, you know, they look at the film either that night or they get back there Monday morning. Uh, and that was something that a bunch of them talked about, just uh, how competitive he is and, and how the, none of them would mind running through a brick wall for him. And, and, you know, put aside the stuff he says off the field, which has all been tremendous, and how well he's played, you know, you could make the argument that he's the best rookie quarterback in the, in the NFL right now among all those guys playing. But just the competitive nature, I think, is exactly what John Dorsey wanted 
when he was drafting a quarterback at number one overall. He wanted somebody who was going to fight through all the trash in Cleveland. Robert Klemko joining us. So he wanted a competitive quarterback, but that trash you're talking about, I mean, I got to be honest, I'm not sure there's a more fascinating team than the Browns this season. When you look at what they've done, I mean, the roller coaster, the almost wins at the start of the year, that big win over the Jets, more close games, the firings of Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley. Uh, in terms of Baker Mayfield, I know John Dorsey wanted a competitive quarterback, but did he factor in that potential dysfunction? Did that factor at all in his decision to take Baker Mayfield? Yeah, when you talk to people that are close to John, I think he realized that you know Hugh Jackson's job wasn't guaranteed and that there was a possibility there was going to be a coaching change this year. I mean, you think that anytime you have a coach who's 1-31 in 31 going into a season in his last two years as head coach, um, so with Baker, I think they really like the fact that he did leave Texas Tech after being Big 12 freshman of the year and walk on at Oklahoma and earn that job uh, and supplant some guys that were in line before him. So they saw that he knew how to fight through a situation that looked somewhat dire. Uh, it, he was an underdog kind of guy with an underdog mentality. And that's what you have to have to be the Cleveland Browns quarterback right now. Robert Klemko joining us. I think most people around the NFL, Robert, would say that they looked at Hugh Jackson and they looked at Todd Haley. And they're like, how in the world is that going to work? So what was that relationship like during the season? And as things started to go south a little bit, how much attention was Jackson paying to what Haley said and what he did? Yeah, you know, when it was announced that Todd Haley was going to be joining that staff and he was going to be taking over offensive play-calling duties, I think most people who cover the league kind of scratch their heads because those are two very different personalities, but two really headstrong guys. And I think we all wondered how it was going to work. And what happened was that Hugh basically absolved himself from all offensive responsibility, didn't even sit in for the install meetings um, for Todd Haley's offense in the spring and summer, and then over the course of the year, as the offense struggled, although not as much as it struggled last year with Hugh calling the plays, but as the offense you know, struggled to put points up and to capitalize on its incredible defense and all the turnovers they were producing, Hugh tried to insert himself into some of those meetings and, and to add some of his ideas. And from what I hear, Haley was pretty receptive to that. But there was a disconnect, uh, not only between Hugh and Haley, but between Coach Jackson and the players, because a lot of those younger players, especially Baker Mayfield, didn't know anything about Hugh Jackson's offense. And I think they recognized that Hugh Jackson also didn't know much about Todd Haley's offense. It's a very bizarre situation. And it's always surprising to see a head coach and a coordinator fired at the same time. But I think this situation merited it. Robert Klemko joining us. So in terms of that decision to fire both those guys at the same time, how much of that was about Mayfield and making sure that the tension between those guys did not wreck his future? Yeah, you know, I think that they wanted to avoid assigning blame to one party and absolving another or making it seem like they were scapegoating one person or the other. So if you get rid of Jackson, you got to get rid of Haley. If you get rid of Haley, you got to get rid of Jackson. They, they have a lot of confidence in, in Freddie Kitchens. You know, I think he's a dark horse to win that OC job next year if the next head coach they bring in is amenable to it. And, and obviously, if that offense um, improves. But. Uh, the big thing to me is that they need to create some sort of uh, continuity and figure out some way to protect Baker Mayfield because this entire season is a wash if he leaves with a season-ending injury. And the way that he's taken hits, not last week, but in weeks prior to that, has been unacceptable. We're talking to Robert Klemko. So what about Greg Williams? Nobody quite liked that guy. How different <laughs> will they be under Greg Williams for the rest of the year? And is there any chance that he could get that job full-time? 
I don't think that there's a chance that he gets that job full-time. I think the person that gets that job is going to be an offensive-minded head coach or at least um, have connections around the league to some of the best offensive minds and have some relationships to where they can present to um, John Dorsey a plan to bring in an offensive coordinator that is really highly sought after in this league. With Greg Williams, you know, he comes in with that bounty gate reputation that's really hard to shake. I think a lot of people before he got the Cleveland job felt like a D.C. job was, has become a ceiling for him. Um, and, and he hasn't shown um, as a head coach, you know, in this first game or, um, you know, a, a, in talking to the media that it, he's anything outside of his reputation, which is, you know, what a hard charging can be somewhat abrasive, crass guy. Um, and maybe that's what the Browns need right now, but I don't think long-term that's what John Dorsey's looking for. Yeah, I don't know that that's what he needs. I know that's what I need right now from a media standpoint. <laughs> this guy's unbelievable. All right, so you mentioned what John Dorsey might be looking for. Then again, Robert, team owner Jimmy Haslam famously took the advice of a homeless person when it came to drafting Johnny Manziel. So is it a certainty that Haslam will take Dorsey's recommendation for a head coach? No, you know, it wasn't a stipulation uh, of Dorsey's coming to Cleveland that he have autonomy and be able to hire the head coach on his own. Jimmy Haslam wasn't offering that to any GM candidate. Um, and he, he also made the choice to hire Hugh Jackson when members of his front office preferred either Sean McDermott or Matt Patricia. So, you know, I, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of John Dorsey settling on a head coaching candidate and Jimmy Haslam going another way. They're both going to be involved in that process. It's going to be a collaborative thing. Um, and I think John's hoping that he has a little bit of leeway here. But you got to remember, John Dorsey has never hired an NFL head coach. Um, so in a sense, Jimmy Haslam has more experience with that than John Dorsey. Maybe his experience is, is pretty bad and his record is pretty awful, but he has the experience, so I think he feels like he knows what he's looking for. We're talking to Robert Klemko. We're talking about the Cleveland Browns. He's got a piece up right now on that team on MMQB. So in the wake of that firing, one of the names, Robert, that comes up is Lincoln Riley. You've spent some time with Riley. How do you think that he would do as an NFL head coach, and is that something that you think might interest him at this point? You know, I don't know that it would interest him. I know that he said that, that that's not in the cards right now. I, I think the bigger question is would – John Dorsey would be interested in bringing somebody up from the college ranks um, to try to change the culture of a program. I mean, Hugh Jackson got it started, and there were positive things that he did there, but there's still a lot that needs to change about the expectations there on a day-to-day -day basis. And I would think that John would lean towards hiring somebody from the NFL side who has experience with pro players as opposed to putting a college coach like a Matt Campbell or a Lincoln Riley through a, cr a crash course in managing NFL players who, with their different motivations and different skill sets, are going to be very different to coach than, you know, the, the, the kids at Oklahoma. Right, so bottom line this, the Browns' record is not that great, although it's better than it's been the last couple of years. I mean, in a way, it would be easy to say, same old Browns. Does it feel like that to you, the same old Browns, or does it feel like there's hope here for their fans? Well, you know, you talked to Joe Thomas and some of the guys um, that have been there for a while, and I think that they feel like there's a core of young players there that they haven't had in the past. Um, there, there's a lot of turnover over this, in this roster over the last couple of years, but the key guys, your Christian Kirksey, you, now your rookie Denzel Ward, Miles Garrett, um, Joel Batonio, J.C. Treader, Larry Ogunjobi, They've got seven, eight, nine guys that you could see being around there for seven, eight years. And that's not something that they've had in the past when they've had coaching turnover. 
So to me, for that reason and for the fact that they feel like they have a franchise quarterback identified in Baker Mayfield, it's a very different scenario uh, than same old Browns. It's a great piece, great conversation. What's next, Robert? What are you working on for the MMQB? Anything in the works? You know, I, I may head out to Pittsburgh, not sure, uh, but I think I'm going to be spending the, the weekend home in Denver. Good night now! How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love.